Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, a group of prisoners in South Carolina who are helping to organize the August 21st national prison strike, have issued a statement in solidarity with the struggle inside the immigrant detention centers. They committed to, quote, keeping the beam, unquote, on these centers during the national strike. Meanwhile, the struggle against immigrant detention centers continues to spread, particularly as the Trump administration promised to begin imprisoning children alongside their parents as though this was a concession. In Portland, Oregon, a permanent camp has occupied the grounds outside the ICE facility for almost a week, blocking their activities. Camps are now popping up across the U.S. surrounding ICE facilities in response to family separation. The Juneteenth strike in Florida and Texas prisons began last week. We will post updates as we receive them. Unfortunately, prisoners in both states are facing massive repression, slowing down the flow of information. According to the Indianapolis Star, Lawrence Parks, age 69, alleges that he didn't receive his mandatory oral chemotherapy for renal cell cancer for more than a month while he was in the Marion County Jail in Indianapolis last year. He claims that when he complained, the county staff gave him an over-the-counter painkiller. Parks is suing Marion County, the Marion County Sheriff, and Correct Care Solutions, the for-profit company that has a $10 million contract to provide medical care to the county's inmates. Mark Stern, a University of Washington professor and consultant on health care in jails and prisons, said the law is clear on inmate medical care. Since the U.S. Supreme Court made a landmark decision in 1976, the standard of care is the community standard of care to the extent that the treatment is medically necessary. The chemotherapy parks needed cost $20,000 for one four-week cycle. A month after a protest became a rebellion at the Crossroads Correctional Center in Cameron, Missouri, the prison remains on lockdown. On May 12th, inmates damaged the prison's dining halls, kitchen, and other property. The inmates were protesting the loss of programs and recreation time because of staffing shortages. A prison spokesperson said the lockdown is mandatory because repairs are being undertaken and an investigation is underway. Inmates are receiving only sack meals and no phone calls or visits except with attorneys. An official from the Missouri Corrections Officers Association says the inmate rage over restrictions arising from staff shortages is reaching a boiling point and worries that the violence will worsen. As USA Today reported, Congress banned debtors' prisons in 1833 and all states followed suit. However, the American Civil Liberties Union recently analyzed a thousand debt cases in 26 states in which judges had issued arrest warrants, some for debts as small as $28. Courts in 44 states and the federal court system have skirted the law on a technicality. When debtors face a lawsuit, the judge orders them to pay. If the debtors fail to appear at a court hearing, sometimes one they didn't even know about, judges find them in contempt, which is a crime, and then they can arrest and jail them. 
People have been arrested while recovering from heart surgery or suffering from cancer. Another way the government criminalizes the poor is that it permits local prosecutors to threaten people with jail for bouncing a check. This week, we'll focus on a specific story about an immigrant detention case in Pittsburgh. Martin Esquivel Hernandez was detained after a traffic stop and eventually deported, leaving his family behind in Pennsylvania. Today, we will hear his story through the eyes of his daughter's experience. This is the first part of two episodes this month on immigration and detention. My name is Shayla Esquivel, daughter of Martin, and I'm here to tell you about my story and my sister's story. Hi everyone, my name is uh, Christina Cuna Castillo. I'm here to, to support the Esquivel family. I worked on their campaign two years ago, um, which is what we'll be talking about. So Martin, two years ago, was stopped in a traffic stop coming back from work. Um, it was. The police officer pulled him over because he said that he <coughs> ran through a crosswalk, which isn't, you're not obligated to stop at a crosswalk unless there's someone there and there wasn't anyone there. Um, but he um, stopped him because also he was suspicious that he was driving without a license, uh, which isn't something that you know until you stop <coughs> someone and figure it out. Um, so basically, Martin was um, racially profiled and um, he participated in the May Day, the annual May Day March for Worker and Immigrant Rights. And the next morning at six in the morning, he was taken from his home um, in front of his family, in front of his wife, um, and they haven't seen each other since. And this was um, over two years ago. Um, and so his wife and um, his kids led a campaign for nine months while he was incarcerated. Um, to bring him home, um, but unfortunately he was deported. It was the, the only case in Pittsburgh to have ever gotten any sort of publicity or um, community support. This is um, one of the, the first times that his wife had spoken out in public about his case. Um, Today we are here because this, is, this Attorney General has one of our people locked up for nothing more than trying to work and do what's right for his family. And today we are honored to have his wife with us to join us in our demand, in our demand to free Martin and to free all detainees. Are you with me? Buen día a todos, señor David Hipton. Estos son los zapatos de un hombre que pudo estar aquí, Martín Esquivel Hernández, un hombre que llegó a este país con la ilusión de trabajar, sacar adelante a sus hijos y ayudar a los demás. Él es un buen hijo, un buen esposo, un superhéroe para sus hijos, un hombre que se preocupa por ayudar a los demás, un miembro en la comunidad, aquel que están destruyendo su vida, manteniéndolo preso sin delito alguno. Es vergonzoso mirar cómo cumple su trabajo destruyendo familias, separándolas. Usted juró cumplir con la ley, protegiendo su gente en su país. Y la realidad es que le está quitando su padre a un ciudadano americano de cuatro años. Eso no tiene nombre. La comunidad está apoyando a Martín Esquivel. 
porque a él, él ha sabido demostrar que es un ser humano y no un número, como usted lo llama. Por esta razón le pedimos consideración para que retire los cargos, le devuelva su libertad y lo ayude con ICE para que no sea deportado. Nadie lo obliga a estar en contra de él. Y le exigimos saber por qué tanto coraje con un hombre que ni siquiera conoce. ¿Por qué? Usted tiene la opción de hacer lo correcto. Y lo correcto es que le devuelva su libertad para que vuelva con su familia y no sea deportado. Y pueda hacer una vida digna en este país. like I said, no one had ever been talking about immigrant rights in this lens before. No one had actually supported real cases. Nobody knew that we have 10 to 15 deportations every week um, right here in our neighborhoods, everywhere, even in East Liberty. I know, like, I imagine that some of you are from there, um, and a lot of people get deported there. Um, and so when we launched the campaign, we didn't really know what we were going into um, because a lot of us had never done this work. Um, we, it, you know, Pittsburgh paints itself as very black and white and there's no room for in between. And so when we had Martin, who was an activist in our community for such a long time, ever since he had arrived here and he was taken from us, we didn't know where to go. We didn't know how to start because there was no, there, there was no roots already in the community to support people like Martin. And so we sort of had to, to create that ourselves throughout the way. Um, and so Martin was actually taken to CCA in Ohio, um, similar to, to the Lloyd Detention Center. Um, and he had been transferred from various different detention centers for um, nine months. And at the end, he was, um, he traveled over 600 miles in total, moving constantly. We never knew where he was. We knew like maybe a week or two after. Um, and every time that he was, moved, he was always moved further and further and further and further away. Or sometimes he'd come closer, but only for a little bit and then move further again. And so um, we would um, go, me and, and his kids would see him every weekend. Um, no matter where he was, we would travel however far it was. Um, and we'd see him and we'd see him through a glass wall. And we'd pick up the telephone and we'd get half an hour, an hour long conversation with him. Um, but it, it was recorded, so there wasn't much detail that we could get into, especially with his campaign and him wanting to participate from the inside and, and work with us. Um, so it became difficult to, to try to do that sort of work. Um, but his wife would always come with us every weekend, and she would stay at a McDonald's right outside of the jail um, because she wasn't allowed in, because she um, is undocumented, and. Um, she's an adult, so she has to provide ID. Um, and so it became, you know, a risk and dangerous for her to, to even want to at least go see the place where her husband was. Um, so she hasn't seen him in three years. Um, and so when, like, when I asked everyone, like, can you just shout out some things that you know about Martin, I want to make sure that we remember him and his case, and I want to see what we remember. And I'm not really, um, I'm not feeling like we remember a lot of him. Um, so Shayla is his, his, uh, his oldest daughter. Um, she's 13 years old. And um, 
she, she led the whole movement to bring her dad back home um, and still continues to fight for immigrant rights. And this is also her first panel that she will be on. Um, so that's, that's good. <laughs> but yeah, so one thing that we want to talk about is like this emotional and like the, the humanity behind it all. But how many of us like know people who have been deported in our own communities? How many of us have built those relationships and remember those people and memorialize them and make sure that they're always honored every day? Um, I don't think that happens very often in Pittsburgh. I've only been here for six years, but I don't, I don't, um, I don't see it a lot. So we're we're here today to sort of bring back that humanity and that emotional tie to it all because it is heavy. What we've done in the past and what these kids have had to go through is intense and it's unimaginable and we want to make sure it's remembered and that Mathene isn't just lost somewhere through it all. Um, so I think we wanted to start off by just saying how it felt to be in a prison the first time, to visit a person and not know what you're going to expect, especially in a detention center. Um, so Sheila, if you want to say some stuff. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming. As I said last time, and like she, um, Christina said, my name is Shayla. I'm the oldest daughter from Martin Esquivel, the father who fought for his family, who has always been working so hard and hasn't like has done a whole bunch of good stuff like support people, help them, even though if they hurt him or if they did something bad, he will always forgive them and still help them. He will always have a smile in his face, even though if, thing, if things get too tough for him or too rough, he'll always be fighting, not for himself, but for his whole community, for his whole family and for his children as well. I think it's not fair for him to get deported because he wasn't just here. He was here to protect his family to protect his sister, I mean, his daughter, his son, and his other sister, I mean, daughter, son, <laughs> and his wife. And the reason why, it was because in Mexico, we had a whole bunch of problems from people fighting a lot and having a lot of issues, and that kind of got into our family. And it got to the point that we had to leave immediately. And now that we were here in Pittsburgh, we had a new, life, a new family, we had to we had to meet other people that who was really nice to us and supported us and even helped us when we didn't even have no money, we didn't know anyone, we didn't even have a place to live or a place where we could call home until now that we did because of all of your guys' work, all of your guys' for coming and supporting us. For me, it was very tough and hard to see my father being on jail, seeing him on an orange suit, having numbers instead of his names, and just like treating him like an item when he really isn't. We had to even lie to our brother that who was four or five at that time. We had to tell him that he, was, that he wasn't in jail. He was actually painting. He was working very hard so later on he can come back to home and play with him, have fun with him tell him stories and take him to like his bed, tell him like stories about when he was little, when he was in very great places. 
Another story, it was my mother's. When my father got taken away from us in May 1st, I mean 2015 or 6, it was very hard for her. I didn't even see her like 24 hours. It would just be like, probably like six hours I would get to see her and then she would leave. She had like two or three jobs a day, coming back home and seeing her just so sick, even though there was no one for her to support her. My mother had to take two roles, a role of a father and a mother, a role of a wife and a husband. Sometimes it's really hard for me to say this. It makes me happy, but sad. Cause I why? That did a lot of things. And what I had to suffer. That had to go through a lot of pain. That not only had to support her children, but her father, her mother, her whole family, even her husband, that was taken away from her. He didn't do nothing wrong. The only thing that he did was support, save, take care of his own family. And that's what I see seeing a father that who saves, supports, helps people. If that's something wrong, then why are we all here? If we all help one another, why are we not like that? If seeing someone helping another person is a crime, calling them a criminal for helping, it's really hard to understand to say why or even have a reason for it. Calling him a criminal, calling him something, not a person, really hurts. And what I think is that he isn't the criminal here. ISIS for stealing, taking, a father who helped, who had a whole bunch of work to help his family. I think that's what a criminal is. Taking a father away from his children, his family, his wife, and having their family now in a very tough time where they're losing money, they're losing time, and they're very suffering every day and night. They can't even rest, take a moment. They can't even think. Just imagine seeing your father or your mother. They couldn't go to your promotion, your concert, or your graduation for next year of school because 
they're losing time. They can't do a lot of things at once. Thank you all for coming and supporting us. Stories like these are um, um, very common for um, at least me to hear people who look like me. It's very, it's every day. Some we hear this often um, and all the time. Um, I um, co-lead a, a youth support group at Casa San Jose. It's a Latino resource center in Pittsburgh. Um, and we hear these stories every time we see each other. If not, you know, um, even like through text and all that, like these kids are not only experiencing this at home, not only having to raise their younger siblings, but they're also getting targeted as well. Um, I work with high school youth, and a lot of them tell stories of ICE following them outside of school and back to their homes. A lot of them are counting their days. A lot of them are not sure if they should even be still going to school or be you know, doing other things that make them happy um, while they have the time. Um, and so when, when we're talking about Martin, we, we do want to to remind you all how heavy this all is. And like seeing campaigns and videos and all this stuff is, is great. And seeing all these like things that go national is amazing. Um, but the stories in Pittsburgh that get lost every day are things that we also have to remember. The, the emotions and the the reality of it all are things that we must always, you know, um, prioritize in our lives, especially when this is happening every day. I can't say that enough. This is happening every single day, every minute. There's a family being torn apart. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, when, um, when I talk to Martin, um, he never really has words anymore and so uh, a lot of our conversations end up being like a minute long if that he never really has anything to say because um, because he's still like stuck he's still traumatized from this all it went so public and like we got national news and he was still deported and we're still seeing deportations happen every day um, and we're not really seeing a lot of support for these families, um, you know, we're talking about abolition and um, justice for incarcerated people, but like we also need to work to make sure that nobody is continued to be criminalized. And, um, and because of that, um, I was actually able to translate all of his documents um, and see him and like touch him, but I was the only one. Uh, it was just me and his lawyer who were the only ones to like hold him.
when Martin was in um, Youngstown, Ohio at CCA, um, he was there for the longest time. And while he was there, CCA actually renamed itself because of all the lawsuits that were being held against CCA. And they, they said that carrying the name was now a liability. Um, and Martin was witnessing a lot of um, violence that was going on inside um, and was you know unable to do things because uh, it, it's really hard to to um, stand up after you know you've been beaten so much. But um, actually, while he was at Youngstown, he witnessed when um, they purchased a thousand beds for ICE, um, and so he was moved around a lot because they just started building a whole new unit, a whole new section that wasn't used was now being used for ICE beds. And he was transferred into ICE pest, or the, the ICE um, like wing or whatever. Um, and that's when he saw like a lot of his neighbors coming more and more. A lot of the people that he knew and like had, had known since he'd been in this country, he saw them um, for only like, you know, a day or two. But things were moving really, really fast, at least at, at Youngstown. Um, there are a lot of people coming in and out, and Martin would see all of them. You know, he was one of the longest people to have stayed there. Um, so, yeah, it was really traumatic to see so many people just disappear again in front of you. I, I wanted to, to say something to Martin's uh, daughter, and I really admire you and what you're doing, and I know you're forced into this and all the pain and it's it's really amazing to to see the work that you're doing and it's so important and I wondered what dreams you have for the future or where you where what dream or just what dreams you have going forward. Well to be honest I always had a whole bunch of dreams. I wanted to be a doctor, a nurse, engineer, a lawyer. A lot of things I could actually do, like as I'm not, I can take, because something I love to do, and I will never stop doing it, it will be just helping others. Even though they don't help me or not, I'll still help them. It's something that my father always told me and always said to me. I always help others. Don't worry that they help you, even if they don't, still help them. Yes, I would love to do a lot of things. But the main one was to be a lawyer or a doctor. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812 269 2512, or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. 
You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.